for helping to put this uh, service together. Um, for today's service, the Social Justice Committee agreed to focus on the topic of allyship. Um, so when we think about social justice, uh, that is achieving what we've been talking about, achieving equality, respect, and dignity for everyone in society, regardless of race or ethnicity, religion or creed, gender, sexual or gender identity, citizenship status or nationality. Allyship is a critical concept to understand. Indeed, it may be the most important concept to understand in the fight for social justice. Uh, to be sure, social justice cannot be achieved without allies. That's how important it is. So I, I hope I get this right. So although the, the, top, the focus will be on allyship, I'm going to back into it a little bit because I, I want to contrast allyship with some very important and related concepts, such as the notion of self-emancipation, which Susan was just alluding to, or self-empowerment. And I also want to contrast it with the notion of charity. So in the broadest sense, the term ally simply refers to a person or a group you can count on, uh, someone who is countable when you need help. Countries have allies and individuals have allies. Now, from the perspective of social justice work, allies specifically are people from privileged groups who develop relationships to support and work with people from marginalized groups to address the problems born of oppression. Um, and in the march towards social justice and in the fight against oppression, uh, before we examine allyship, we, we must first contrast allyship with another model of social justice work, which is emancipation or self-empowerment. So it's important to remember for all of us to honor the fact that nobody has fought harder or paid a greater price in the fight to ensure that people are treated with equality, respect, and dignity than those who have suffered the inhumanity of slavery, the Holocaust, Native American genocide, or any of the other instances in human history when one group of people has treated another group of people as less than human or less than equal based solely on group membership. So, so we must remember the civil rights movement led by folks like Martin Luther King and other African-American leaders, the gay rights movement led by folks like Harvey Milk, and the American Indian movement by, led by Russell Means, the migrant farm workers movement led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, and, and the women's suffrage movement led by Susan B. Anthony. Now, this may seem like an obvious point, but popular versions of history often seem to highlight the deeds and efforts of allies over those of the targets of oppression. Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, is rightfully credited with ending slavery. But if we only saw, through, saw things through popular culture, we would never recognize the life and deeds of Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Tubman, uh, all former slaves who fought for abolition. And for proof of this, I would remind you that in the 2010s alone, there were five movies made about Abraham Lincoln, including the historically accurate Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout the course of movie history, though, there's exactly one major motion picture about Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Tubman combined. So yes, these movements were all led by iconic members of targeted and marginalized and disenfranchised groups and their followers who lived and died to free themselves from the shackles of oppression. But aside from fighting for equality and freedom, these groups have also kept the aspirations and ideals of our country and society alive. In the book, Margins and Mainstreams, Asians in American History and Culture, Gary Okihiro 
pays tribute to multiculturalism in America by essentially arguing that the core values of our society actually come not from the mainstream, but from the margins where people of color and women, members of the LGBT community and other marginalized groups have held society accountable to the ideas of our founders. And beyond that, members of marginalized groups have done something even more powerful. Throughout human history, members of these groups and their allies who fought for social justice also kept the human spirit alive. Members of these groups have fought and continue to fight for the simple respect and dignity that we all require. And I can say that with 100% absolute historical certainty because no human ever has said, I have no right to dignity or respect. So I argue here that to be a part of these movements is to be on the right side of history, to be on the right side of democracy, and to promote the human spirit. So in the work of social justice, allyship also needs to be distinguished from charitable works. Faith communities like ours often engage rightfully in charitable works, driven by biblically derived references such as there but for the grace of God go I, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. But sayings such as there but for the grace of God go I, and reading the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I say this respectfully, can be restraining in the work of social justice. When we come across someone less fortunate and think there but for the grace of God go I, do we ever stop to consider that it is only by the grace of, not, it's not only by the grace of God, but by the privilege of our skin color, or our gender, or sexual orientation, or mental or physical health? Even if we believe that God created us and imbued us with these characteristics we were born with, it is not God, but people of free will who have chosen and continue to choose to construct those characteristics into markers of inferiority and superiority so that white skin is seen as superior to dark skin or male gender to uh, gender superior to female gender. Uh, those with papers are seen superior as those to without. Heterosexuality is seen as superior to homosexuality and so on and so forth. And it is this construction of these characteristics of, as markers of superiority and inferiority that lead members of some group to do unimaginable things to others. Last year, Evelyn and I uh, went to see the John Leguizamo play Latin History for Morons. And in that show, he notes how Aztecs and Mayans and Incas were decimated by disease. And I think I always knew this. I mean, we've always talked about, um, and many of us are aware of, uh, disease being one of the many factors that contributed to the extinction or near extinction of many indigenous tribes throughout North and South America. But what I didn't know was how disease like smallpox were weaponized in various instances and used as tools of biological warfare. Cortez reportedly sent a smallpox-infected slave into Montezuma's encampment to kill and bring smallpox to the Mayans. Um, in the 17th century, and Lord Jeffrey Amherst reportedly distributed smallpox-infected blankets to Ottawa Indians during the French and Indian Wars. And I imagine good-hearted people in those times who came across sore-covered Native Americans or indigenous people during these dark and horrible times and thought to themselves, there but for the grace of God go I, would have been wrong. God had nothing to do with that. And I say this not to be respectful or irreverent. I say it as a budding Unitarian Universalist where we believe um, that people may have variance beliefs in God. So for those who, who, not, who do not believe in God, I'm simply stating a fact. God had nothing to do with atrocities like that. 
for those who believe in God, in my tradition, I was taught that people have free will. So when I say God had nothing to do with these atrocities, I mean it in this sense. People have a choice about how they treat others. And I realize that I may be on some shaky theological ground here. <laughs> Luckily, this is a, uh, a lay-led service, so <laughs> I think I have a little leash here, a little room here. However, if I'm way off, don't tell Cindy. <laughs> and for those of you who are on the worship committee, there'll be a little something extra in your personal collection <laughs> basket if we just keep it between us. But to return to this idea of allyship versus charity, when we examine allyship um, and charity, I'm also reminded of the parable of the Good Samaritan. As the story from the book of Luke goes, a Jewish merchant on the road to Jericho was attacked by a gang of thieves, robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. First a priest, and then soon after a Levite passed by, and both in turn passed on helping the man for fear that things might be too complicated or fear of themselves being set upon by the gang or fear that touching a dead body would be ritually unclean. So then a Samaritan comes by, takes pity on the man and proceeds to take care of him. And in telling the parable, Jesus makes clear that Samaritans and Jews at the time deeply disliked one another. So in short, the Good Samaritan story is a story of being a good neighbor and compassionate. It's also a story of helping others despite our personal biases. And lastly, it's a story of choosing deeds over creed. It's a story about the power of individuals. And in promoting charitable work at the individual or even at the congregational level, when we consider the story of the Good Samaritan, we might ask ourselves to reflect on times in our lives when we acted more like the priest or the Levite than the Samaritan. Certainly that reflection can bring up some guilt or insecurity that can come from recognizing our shortcomings or challenges and contributing all the time, but it can also inspire us to do better. But charitable work doesn't just have to only mean giving someone in need a helping hand when they're down. It can also mean trying to address the conditions that have led them to be slammed down to the ground in the first place. As a congregation engaged in allyship, when we consider the story of Good Samaritan, we might also ask ourselves some very complex questions, questions like, what is our role in promoting care and compassion on a collective level? Or what were some of the conditions that contributed to making the road to Jericho such a treacherous road at the time? Or what were the reasons why Samaritans and Jews so deeply disliked each other? And to what degree did their divi divisions benefit their common Roman oppressors? Or what about that band of thieves? Why, while we don't condone violence, is it simply a case of poor moral character? Or are there structural inequalities that lead people to engage in violence for survival? And lastly, we can ask these questions about problems related to marginalized people in our society today. And spoiler alert, there's always these issues in society today because there's always people with power and those who don't. So this issue is never whether or not, oh, excuse me. So um, UU Minister Jack uh, Mendelson said it this way, the issue is never, uh, never whether or not we possess power or whether or not we can use it. We do and we can. What is impossible is avoiding its use. Not to decide in the face of injustice is to let injustice stand. The issue then is always how best to decide on the side of our ideals, how best to incarnate in our actions what we stand for. 
So with all of that as a backdrop, I want to talk about allyship now. Um, so first, if you look up the word allyship in the dictionary, you won't find it, at least not yet. Typically, when you add the suffix ship to a personal noun, the word remains a noun, but it denotes something deeper, a condition. Uh, for example, the word fellowship, right? To be in fellowship with something, someone means something deeper than to say you're a fellow parishioner or a fellow congregant, right? So too with the word allyship. It means something deeper, um, more than a call uh, to call yourself or identify yourself as an ally. And if you Google the word allyship, it's not always the best way to do research, I understand. But interestingly, you may get many hits from the business community because the term is being used more and more um, in relationship to addressing issues of workplace diversity. But what I want to focus here on is allyship's role in advancing social justice. And in this context, allyship is defined as an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating in which a person in position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with marginalized groups. So let's break that down a little bit. One word in there is active. It's defined by actions. Now, those actions don't necessarily have to be only doing things for the sake of doing things. The actions can be contemplative. It's the practice of unlearning and reevaluating, as the definition says. So to go back to the topic of charity and the story of the Good Samaritan, it's important to engage in good deeds, but it's also important to step back and ask some of the more important and difficult and complicated questions about the conditions to contribute to the need for those good deeds in the first place. And that's also why embedded in the definition of allyship is the word arduous. So allyship is arduous. It's, it's more complicated work. The definition also includes the notion of people with privilege and power working in solidarity with marginalized groups. While it is true that no social movement can exist without the help of allies, it is also true that the role of allies exists only because the ally holds power and privilege. What this means is that people with power and privilege have to follow the lead of those with less power because, as I touched upon earlier on the notion of self-empowerment, folks from marginalized groups know what they need to feel like they are being treated with respect and dignity and what they need to achieve equality. And when you think about it, that's just being respectful. To not follow their lead is like a friend needing help with a surprise birthday party for their spouse. And my responding by saying, you know what, I'll be right over there with the date and time of the surprise party, how we're going to spring the surprise, the menu, and the guest list. And oh, by the way, can I invite all my friends over who you don't know? Right? We would never do that. So just the work of following the lead of others is part of the work of, of allyship. So as we were preparing for this uh, uh, sermon and the service, um, we had discussions with Cindy. And one of the things that Cindy outlined for us was kind of the parts of a service, of a sermon. And she said, to end with an ask. So as we are preparing, well, we were preparing for this service, um, and as we thought about the ask, um, there's a very simple ask here today. And that is that we push ourselves to think more deeply about our commitment to social justice with an eye toward developing allyship with marginalized groups. Now, when I say to push ourselves, I don't necessarily mean we have to sacrifice our lives, although, of course, we all can think of many instances throughout history 
uh, where people have literally sacrificed their lives for social justice. But we don't need to sacrifice everything. Here, the words of Stephen Schick from Be the Change, uh, a UU publication, are especially appropriate. He writes, being a force of history and a lover of life at the same time can feel like an uneasy comp combination. When we are forces of history, we engage in the problems of the world and act to improve on them. But as lovers of life, we delight in mere existence, the beauty of watching a bird in flight or the light uh, fading into dusk. As Rumi points out, the lover is always getting lost and choosing to drown in the eternal. Must we choose between immersing in the issues of the day or drowning in love? Two acts are required to get lost in love and accept one's time location. Like Rumi's dervishes, we are compelled to whirl in love, holding one hand toward the heaven and one hand toward the earth. Grounded in this way, we are moved to engage history with hope and push it toward a more just future. Perhaps practicing the two arts is like breath. Breathe in the deeds of history and be, breathe out the joy of living. Breathe in the joy of living and breathe out, breathe out the deeds of history. And I'm going to end um, and hopefully give us enough time for a congregational share um, by reminding us that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards social justice, as Martin Luther King said, and others. But it's long because the work will almost certainly never end in our lifetime. It's not going to end by the election of an African-American president or any other marker, specific marker. It will always be there. But it bends towards social justice as long as we remain engaged with social justice. And I think with that, I want to end to make sure that we have time for congregational share and many other parts of that.